This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach, heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and you know you're so swept away by a novel when you feel like you've just become wrapped around the characters. And even though you've finished the book, you can't quite let go of it all. Fleeting images remain. I felt all of that and more reading the book for today's episode. And I'm so happy that author Ruth Rakoff is here today to talk about her upcoming book, Untethered, which is exquisitely written, by the way. And I want her to help us unpack it and all the rest in this episode. It made me sob my heart out at the end and at various points throughout, made me laugh as well. And it really transported me to two worlds that were so divergent, the world of the twin sisters with very different lives, religiously, spiritually, and in every which way. Before we meet Ruth, who I was once very closely related to, let me tell you a little bit more about this very talented writer and artist. Ruth Rakoff is a writer and the director of a nonprofit organization. She has a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature from the University of Toronto. She is grateful for the privilege of writing and making art. Born in Montreal, Rakoff published her first book, a memoir titled When My World Was Very Small, in 2010. The book was nonfiction, and it was beautifully written. In this, her first novel, Rakoff weaves personal experience into fictional characters and narratives in Untethered, her first novel. And the result, while not necessarily blissful at first glance, is heartbreakingly beautiful. It's tragic. It's meaningful. And I think it's an important piece of writing that just grabs a hold of you, as mentioned, and won't let go that easily. Ruth lives in Toronto, Ontario. She's the mother of three. She's a daughter, a sister, a friend, and a great advocate to many much like her protagonist, Petal, in this novel. Ruth Rakoff, welcome to Finding Your Bliss, and congratulations on your very compelling, heart-wrenching, and moving book, Untethered. I know there are a lot of people beaming with pride for you, both on this earth and from above. Congratulations. Thank you. So right off the top, I'll have to share this with our listeners to be transparent, that we used to be sisters-in-law, A long time ago, I used to be married to Ruth's brother, Simon, who I'm still very good friends with. And I have to tell you, Ruth, that all throughout this book, I felt like I was experiencing the book on two levels. As a first-time reader would, which is what everyone's going to experience with all of the excitement and magic and mystery and wonder of entering this fictitious world. And then on another level, which again, I have to be transparent about, as someone who was in your family. And so it catapulted me immediately back into the feelings and sensibility of what it was like to be part of the Rakoff family. You dedicate the book to your beloved late brother, Davey. I know your love for Davey was unsurpassed. And what you really do in this book is you demonstrate the love that siblings can have for one another. And like the twins in your book and how inextricably tied many of these characters are together. And I saw Davey and so many of the characters, especially Benjamin. And of course, Davey's middle name was Benjamin. But before we delve too deeply into the characters and the story, because there's so much I want to talk about, can you tell us more about what Untethered is all about, especially the two main characters, Petal and Rose, 
twin sisters, one who becomes ultra-Orthodox, the other at the opposite end of the spectrum. And can you tell us a little bit more about the inspiration behind this book, Your Brainchild? What was the inspiration for writing this book? What was the inspiration? You know, a lot of different things. The first piece was that I was working at the time that I started writing it in the ultra-Orthodox community. And as a complete outsider, I had an up-close and personal view of something that I never otherwise would have been let into. And so I just felt compelled to tell that story a little bit, both for people's curiosity and for my own process of working through a complex relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another piece of the story, I don't know if you recognized or remembered, was sort of gleaned a little bit from my father's experiences in the late 1940s, mm -hmm. which I also felt was a compelling story. Yes. It's, again, it's all fiction. None of it is actual, mm -hmm. but writers are vultures. We steal <laughs> from everywhere, right. maybe more like magpies. And then, of course, finally, this was, I started writing this shortly after my brother passed away, mm -hmm. and it was my novel of grief. Mm -hmm. And so I think that comes through. Mm -hmm. Um but again, the characters are not one person or another person or entirely based in reality. Yes. But writing is a process that I use to sort through my own feelings and emotions. Mm -hmm. It's just, I mean, it's exquisitely done. And I, I also sort of remarked that one of the first acknowledgments in your book was this to my father, Vivian Rakoff, who allowed me to use him as a muse and to cannibalize his stories, experiences and research to write this work of fiction. I'm heartbroken he didn't live to see it published. Can you tell us about the character of Dare? I love this character. And he reminded me so much of your father. How much of this character was drawn from your lovable late father, Vivian Rakoff? You know, bits and pieces. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Some of the events are true to my father's experiences. Yes. But then they're housed differently. Mm -hmm. This is not memoir. This is fiction. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, he looks like my dad in my <laughs> yes. head, in my mind. He looks like my father. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, my father did, in fact abandoned his studies in England and ran away to the war in Palestine at age 19. Yes, yes. And I actually did a lot of research to uncover the, the actual events from history as opposed to from my father's 19-year-old memory. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to get to that, and, uh, and I will get to it later on, but just the research is impeccable. And I know the character of Petal spends 16 years in the book in Israel, and you didn't spend 16 years. I know. I know you did spend a time there and your dad spent a time there, but it really felt like you had spent 16. You know, like I believed, I believed those 16 years. It was so impeccably researched. Also, the descriptive language in the book is spectacular. And I just have to share this gorgeous description here with our listeners. It's just one of many, but neat, well-appointed in a simple mid-century style, square charcoal gray sofa, soft brown leather armchair with well-worn footstool covered in New Yorker magazines, oval teak coffee table, oriental carpets, and kilns 
patchwork throughout and bookshelves lining every wall except the windowed one, which looked onto the balcony overlooking the street. Modern academic bachelor circa 1955. Can you tell us what you're describing here? Because I felt like I've been in that room before and I know it's not. And I know you draw from what you know and from whence you come and all that stuff. But it just felt like a room that I was in. I'm glad it felt like a room you were in. It's meant to feel like a room you're in. It's not otherworldly at all. No. No. Even though I explore different worlds through the narrative, mm-hmm. it is very much of this world. Mm-hmm. You know, my house is like that. And your parents' house. And it felt like your dad's office. And it felt like Davy's uh, home. And it just felt like, you know, I felt it. And I and it was very real and very authentic. We're going to talk more about your wonderful book, Untethered, which left me feeling pretty untethered, I have to tell you. But I want to take a step back for a minute because I know your first foray into serious writing was When My World Was Very Small, which I know was based on a very difficult period in your life when you were diagnosed with breast cancer and the year that you spent living on your couch fighting it and surviving it. And there was that wonderful article in the Globe and Mail in 2010 that read, David and Ruth Rakoff, One Disease, Two Very Different Books, when both of your books were being launched by the same publisher at the same time, when my world was very small and David's book, Half Empty, 10 Personal Essays. And there's a scene in that book of yours where you're watching your mother at the top of the stairs, looking so tiny and diminutive, and your writing has the ability to just pierce through the reader's heart and break it in two. You're really a beautiful writer, Ruth. And I knew that with the first book. Can you take us back just to the writing of that first book? Was that a cathartic experience for you? And just the impact the book had on cancer survivors and just people going through similar struggles? So like I said, writing has become a process of, or a a means of processing complex emotions for me. I've always made things, you know, I've, drawn and painted and sculpted. And sculpture was my medium of choice for quite some time. And through chemotherapy, I developed neuropathy in my hands and fingertips and I couldn't sculpt. And as I started to recover, I needed to make something and I didn't have any energy to do very much. So I started writing. (laughs) And really I was, I was journaling. I was processing my own experience and about a year after I I was speaking to my brother and I said, you know, I've been writing because, of course, I'm not the writer in the family. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, oh, yeah, what have you been writing? And he asked me to send it to him. And I did. And he was the one who said this is publishable. Wow. I hadn't had any thoughts of publishing. I was writing for myself. But then I kind of got hooked. Mm-hmm. You know, you're right if you're compelled to write. There's no other reason to do it because it's hard mm-hmm. and time consuming and mm-hmm. emotionally and mentally draining. Mm-hmm. And I think of it as an incredible privilege. Mm-hmm. And in writing, you were able to process it and not only do that, but of course, help so many other people, you know, with this incredible book that I'm sure made other people who were spending the year living on their couch feel less lonely and feel feel more understood and have somebody, you know, writers express for us what we can't express, what we think and feel, but we can't express. And you just did a, an incredible, incredible job with that. And also around that time, I'm not sure if it was just before or during or around that time, you did something fascinating, which is you were part of a highly acclaimed show produced by playwright Judith Thompson, presented by Dove. That's right, the Dove Soap. 
all about how society looks at aging. And this stage production commissioned by Dove had a national cast of 13 real Canadian women between the ages of 45 and 78, quite remarkable, celebrating the diverse beauty of mature women. And you were in this. Can you tell us about the trajectory of what was involved in getting into this production? You were never a performer as far as I knew. And suddenly you're a performer in a major piece with a very seriously acclaimed director. Like I remember thinking at the time, wow, this is what actors dream of. And here you were doing this. What was that like for you? So you're absolutely right. I, again, was not the performer in the family. Far from it. I had terrible stage fright. And, you know, after going through cancer and treatments and surgeries and all of that, I thought, if this is my last five years on earth, uh, because that's, you know, statistically the the window, I want to do things that I want to do. And one of those things was to push myself out of my comfort zone. And so this opportunity came about and the initial audition piece was to write a letter to your body. (laughs) And I was doing that anyhow. And so I submitted a letter to my body and was called for an audition and ended up doing this show. So, wow. Was it a great experience? Was it a great experience to be on stage and do the show? I never need to get on stage ever again. You know, I, I... I kind of found doing the same play over and over again every night for weeks on end boring. Yes. And 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 I spoke to an actor friend and I said, well, like, you know, it's the same thing over and over again. And he said to me, well, each time you make it better. And I thought, yeah. well, I'm not an actor, so I can't really make it better. And I'm playing myself. So it's just, it's... It's who I am. So it's not getting any better than this. This is what it is. Uh, Whereas with writing, I can make it better. And that's, you know, writing and editing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And it does get better. That's so incredible. I remember when your beloved late brother Davey said this about writing, and I quote, during the act of making something, I experience a kind of blissful absence, the self and a loss of time. When I'm done, I return to both feeling as restored as if I'd been on a trip. I almost never get this feeling any other way. I once spent 16 hours making 150 wedding invitations by hand and was not for one instance of that time tempted to eat or look at my watch. By contrast, if seated at the computer, I check my email conservatively 30,000 times a day. When I'm writing, I must have a snack, call a friend or abuse myself every 10 minutes. I used to think this was nothing more than the difference between the things we do for love and those we do for money. But that can't be the whole story. I didn't always write for a living. And even back when it was my most fondly held dream to one day be able to do so, writing was always difficult. Writing is like pulling teeth from my blank. I think you get my drift. (laughs) That is the best quote. And I'm wondering where you fall on that continuum because you you say it's difficult, but I feel like you enjoy it more. You know, I'm not a perfectionist and he was. That's the first thing. Maybe because he could make it perfect. Mm -hmm. I have no delusions. (laughs) But it isn't what I do for a living. It's what I do for, you know, my soul. Mm -hmm. Whereas he, he wrote for a living. Mm-hmm. I would love to write for a living, but not have to do my day job as well. Mm-hmm. For sure. Although you but do it, write beautifully. Yeah, Ruthie, you, I just got to say this for our listeners because she's being very modest. Your writing is is pretty sensational. And I, I'm telling you, this book is... Uh, anyway, 13 years later, you catapulted all this and more into your first novel fiction. 
which I think he began a little over 10 years ago. And about nine years ago. Nine years ago. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering how you prepare yourself to be a novelist. It's a very different beast from nonfiction. And how was your father amused in all of this? And what was involved in cannibalizing his stories, as you described? Like, you just tell us a little bit about the process of how you went from a nonfiction writer writing a very authentic, heartbreakingly beautiful piece about your life to this, like a real novel with real characters and settings and all of the rest. So when I finished writing or finished dealing with the whole, you know, publication of the memoir, um, it was time to start a new project. And I thought, nobody wants to hear any more about me, like enough. Uh, So I'm going to write something more fun and, you know, try my hand at fiction. And I wrote a novel that will never see the light of day. Wow. Because I... I didn't know what I was doing and I was just sort of trying it on for size and figuring it out. But what I figured out while writing that novel that will never see the light of day <laughs> was that characters and voice were really important to me. Yes. And so for me, it's about taking a thread. I, I don't start with a plan. I create these characters. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly how, but once they're sort of fleshed out in my brain Mm -hmm. because I've been spending time with them. Mm -hmm. They then tell me their stories. Mm -hmm. I know it sounds funny. So Petal, I feel is you in a lot of ways. I know no one is you and everyone's a composite of someone, but there's Petal and then there's her twin sister, Rosie. Where did these characters, like they're so believable and so real and so, so incredible I'm just wondering how you develop, like how this all started with these two characters, these identical twins, one who becomes ultra orthodox, the other one who's the other side of the other end of the spectrum and their relationship, their life. And you created a whole world around them. I mean, I couldn't believe it. So they're not identical. They're fraternal. Fraternal. And, you know, I was very close with my brother. Yes. Um, We're two years apart. I was two years older. But in many ways, we always said that together... We were a whole person that, you know, everything from our, you know, aesthetic sensibilities to our skills and talents and whatever, we kind of complemented one another. You know, I love the sun and the heat and the beach and the water. And and I used to call him my vampire brother because (laughs) he can't stand any of that stuff. (laughs) And our lives were so different. And and I think that, as I said, I was, you know, processing stuff. And I think that's where the relationship of the twins came from. And I don't want to give away too much about the book, but they are fraternal twins very much. Yes. And I think that's where the this... But it starts as a, as a grain of sand. Like, it starts as nothing and then... I don't know. They sort of take me on a path. They took on a life of their own. You go on the train ride. You you, you go on the, I I read this once that you take it, you go on a train ride with these characters, like a long, you know, trans Canada, you know, train ride, railway ride. And, Mm -hmm. and they start to, but I, I really, I, I couldn't get over how full blown and how fascinating these two girls were. And you shared with us before the interview, some of your favorite writers that have had a great influence on you, writers you admire that you wish you could write like, one of them is my favorite writer, Phil Roth. 
And you say you love his writing for the clarity and capacity to get to the point. And of course, what comes to mind right away is Portnoy's Complaint and Goodbye Columbus. And I feel that you have that clarity in your writing in this novel. Can you describe more about what you love about Philip Roth's writing? First of all, he's a wonderful storyteller, and I'm obsessed with stories and narrative and the importance of stories. But he is he is spare. There's nothing superfluous. There's nothing extra. He gets to the point clearly, but without it being stark. Mm -hmm. He's spare, but not stark. Mm -hmm. Um, He tells a story directly. Mm -hmm. I don't know how Mm -hmm. else to describe it, Mm -hmm. but it's capacity. Yes. That's a very apt description. Were you stringent and exacting with your own editing before you gave it over to the editors? (laughs) It's a good question. I am no Philip Roth. I was told by my editor at the (laughs) 11th hour to cut 30,000 words from my manuscript. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh my Um, goodness. Yeah. Sparity or sparseness is not my... uh, Is not not your forte. You also mention John Irving as a writer who inspires you as he is a teller of tales. Tell me more about what you love about John Irving's writing. Again, he's a storyteller. He, mm-hmm. he, he weaves a great narrative. You're sucked in by the characters and the, and the yes. events. And, you know, I'm really compelled by stories. Yes. And you're going to find that, guys, when you read this book Untethered, because that's exactly what it's like. You get once you're sucked in, <laughs> you can't. I mean, I literally didn't sleep for two nights. I, I had been reading it, but I, there were two nights where I just didn't sleep. I couldn't stop reading until, like, you know, you fall asleep from exhaustion <laughs> with, with the computer in your head. I also love that you mention another writer that profoundly affected you is Miriam Tows for her ability to convey real emotions and tell truths. And of course, Miriam Tows, everyone was the author of Women Talking, which became the award-winning film and Sarah Pauli won for her best adapted screenplay of Women Talking and raw, unadulterated emotions like no other. And and I'm just wondering for you, look, that's what I felt. That That's what led to the uncontrollable sobbing at the end of the, of the book and throughout was that the emotions were so raw. Where do you go to, to get that? Does it just come in a facile way for you? Because it was like on the edge. Like I felt the rawness and the, like, you're just, oh my God, guys, the last couple of pages of the book, you will, you will not believe. But it, it just, it's just uh, so real and raw and truthful, authentic. How do you get there? Well, thank you for saying all that. How do I get there? You know, I'm not afraid of my emotions at all, which is a good thing because I have big ones and a lot of them uh, and a lot of trauma in my life. And I write from my gut. It's really a process where sometimes, I'll, uh, you know, the characters do something that I'm not expecting I know, again, that sounds a little nutty, but I'll write it and they'll, and suddenly they're doing something and I go, oh my God, I can't believe what they did or where they went or how that played out. And, and then I sit within and say, well, how did that feel? And really Hmm. like in my solar plexus, I go, what's that feeling and how do I describe and define and, and articulate that feeling? Mm. And I sit in it. Mm, That's incredible. I also sense from reading this that you're an avid reader. Like, I just feel like you're a person who has one or two books going on at a time. And so you understand structure and theme and character and all of it. Did you take any courses to understand how to be a novel writer? 
I am an avid reader. I'm also extremely porous. So when I'm writing fiction, I can't read fiction, but I love fiction. And I have an undergraduate degree in English literature. I've never taken any creative writing classes. Wow. Um, But, you know, as you know, my family is not an athletic family, but um, our sport of choice was witty conversation and banter. Uh, Absolutely. I always lost, but <laughs> I used to feel before a Friday night dinner that I had to be on my ballerina in the toe shoes and I'd, I would have had to read the New York Times from cover to cover to be able to talk about all the arts and culture and news and current affairs and all of the things that you would cover in an evening. So I can understand growing up in that world. You mentioned Faulkner for painting worlds and creating voices and Fitzgerald for making all of the puzzle pieces fit. And I think that all of these authors would have been proud of your efforts and Untethered. Do you love writing more than ever now that you've done this and it's just, the book is starting to take on a life of its own? Do I love it more than ever? I think the more I do it, the more I'm compelled to do it. I have a next project percolating and it's been percolating for quite some time because it's taken me nine years to get to this point with this project. And I am eager to get going on it. I have a big day job. I run an organization, so it's hard for me to find time. Uh, That sometimes makes, I always think that sometimes makes a person more effective. And when you only have that limited amount of time, you just do it. It's not like I have one thing to do all week. I can't even get the dry cleaning done. When you are that busy, you find time. So that was going to be my next question because I have a listener who always asks me, what is the process for a singer, for a musician, for a writer, for an artist of any kind? What is their process? So do you have a process? Do you have a time of day that you're at your best where you plunk yourself down in front of the computer What does your writing process look like? Don't answer that just yet. We're going to go on a short commercial break. More with Finding Your Bliss and author Ruth Rakoff when we return. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. And I'm here with the incredibly talented author, Ruth Rakoff. And before the break, I was asking you, Ruth, what your writing process is like. Do you have a set time in the day when you're at your best? Do you work in small bursts of energy? What does your writing process look like? I'm extremely undisciplined. (laughs) I did take about eight months off at a particular point in time when I was working on the first draft and writing was my job at that moment. Mm. Um, But I also had a family to take care of. 
And I also had other stuff going on in my life. So, you know, if I got three days of writing in in a week, I felt like a superhero. Mm -hmm. And it's not something I can pick up in dribs and drabs. I don't do, you know, oh, I've got 30 minutes. I can, you know, Mm -hmm. have to get into characters. I have to think of the voices. I have to really immerse myself. What's my process? It's a good question. Like I said, I, I... these characters introduce themselves to me. Mm. So cool. And I had no idea what story I was telling. I had, as I said, three elements mm. that I knew I, I needed to process, mm. but I didn't know how that was going to happen. It's just incredible. Will you sit ever for seven hours and not even oh. realize that the time has elapsed? Absolutely. Not only sit, I work at a standing desk a lot of the time. Oh. So I'll stand for seven or eight hours. Wow. And then at the end, they've realized that I've been standing for seven or eight hours. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. That's how you know you're in flow. That's how you know that it's really working. That's, that's, yeah. I talk to people about that as a coach when, how they know that they're in their bliss when that exact thing happens. You go, what? It was noon and now it's seven o'clock. The sun is setting. Like, what is, what just happened? That's fabulous. There was, uh, I was just going to ask you about this piece about Israel, because there was so much evocative description and very elaborate research that seemed to be evident in your writing. And and we talked about this. There was like, this character spent 16 years in Israel. How did you do that research? Did you go to Israel? Was it I all did. from memory? You did. No, and I you- did. I, I, um, I, when I finished the first draft, there were holes in it. And I knew that there were holes in it. And I took a month and went to Israel to what I thought I was there to do was to research by interviewing people who had been on the ground between 1947 and 1957. So older people, mm-hmm. uh, many of whom have passed away since I interviewed them. Wow. Um, and I Again, I let them tell me their stories. I really was very non-directive in my interview process. I didn't have set questions. My questions were like, what do you remember from that time? Mm-hmm. And so I interviewed about a dozen different people and their backgrounds and their stories and their experiences were so diverse but there were things that came up again and again. And I didn't know what I was going to use or, or how it was all going to fit or if it was, if, you know, I was, but when things came up over and over again in different people's stories, I thought that has to be included. Mm-hmm. But during my visit, I also, you know, saw friends and saw family and went to movies and went to theater and did all sorts of other stuff. And through those conversations, I learned all sorts of other things that I wasn't hmm. expecting to I learn. I love that. <laughs> um, you know, and then there's Google. <laughs> there's Google, our good friend, our good friend Google. I know that your protagonist, Petal, had a big bias towards orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. But she was compelled as a human being to not be judgmental and to try to be understanding and compassionate. I found that quite lovely. I have a son who's Orthodox, so I just as a mother, I'm compassionate and empathetic and try to be there for him, even though I may not, you know, may have a different bent. But I relate to this a lot. Do you have a greater understanding and less of a bias about Orthodox Judaism after writing this book? I know this is a very loaded question. I was so curious. It's a very loaded question. So I have to preamble the question by saying that I am a well-educated Jew. 
I know Judaism well. I went to parochial school for many years. I then lived in Israel for four years. In Israel, the dichotomy between the religious and the secular is huge and complicated. And I think that my bias was reinforced living in Israel. And then, as I said, I had this opportunity to work in the Orthodox community. Mm-hmm. And when I interviewed for the job that I was going for, I, I was interviewed by an ultra-Orthodox man, and I was going to be working in schools, many of them boys' schools, with you know rabbis who don't talk to women, let alone secular women. And I said to him, how's this going to work? <laughs> and he said to me... <laughs> Well, yeah. Uh, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, I'm secular and I'm a woman. And he said, yeah, and you think you're Jewish. And he was half joking. Boy. <laughs> he was half joking. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I thought, huh, interesting. And I, I did go into it with a lot of preconceptions and judgments, and some were reinforced. Mm-hmm. But I met people. Mm -hmm. I met individuals, remarkable individuals. Mm -hmm. Nobody works harder than Orthodox mothers. Mm -hmm. Like, phenomenal. Mm -hmm. You know, they have their 10th baby, and then the next day they're back at work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're they're learned. And I even found that interesting. There was a line in the book where you say, someone asked the question, who is more learned, the the Orthodox woman or the Orthodox man? And there's a line, I'm not sure if I'm quoting it exactly correctly, but the woman, the woman is the more learned person. It's not not more learned, it's more better educated. Better educated. Two different things. Yeah, yeah. They're learned in the Torah and the woman is better educated in all. But yeah. very, it's just fascinating, fascinating stuff. So this brings up another great thing that I wanted to mention. My producer, who also read this book and who was not Jewish, found it fascinating that this was a completely foreign community to her. And yet she found so many universalities in the characters, situations, and themes, demonstrating that we really are more alike then we are different. So when looking at writing, it is often said that the more specific you make something, the more universal it becomes. Can you say more? Um, Well, I'm glad that you said that. I'm glad that she felt that because I I do believe that that is the case. You know, my publisher isn't Jewish (laughs) at all. And when he decided that he was interested in the book, I felt almost a sigh of relief that I had achieved that universality. Mm -hmm. Um, Human beings are human beings, and Mm -hmm. we all run the gamut of similar emotion and similar experience. And, you know, for example, Miriam Taves writes about her Mennonite community, and and that's the world that she knows, but Mm -hmm. it's entirely universal yes in fact i just referring specifically to women talking where which you know i think of as a Miriam taves novel and i know that everybody else thinks of as a sarah polly movie but um, <laughs> uh, i i saw that movie with a friend and her 19 year old son and we left the movie and I said, well, what'd you think? And he said, well, I don't really think that I'm allowed to comment because I'm a man. And I said, uh, no, it's not about women. It's about power and it's about voice and it's about 
claiming your space and all. It's not about women. It's about women. It's the specific is women, but the universal concept is not. Mm -hmm. So true. And there are universal themes in your book, Ruth. Loss is a huge one. And the grief that your characters feel being the role of the caretaker in the family. And also even in resilience, which is what we talked about before we even did this interview. Is this a bliss story? I don't know, but it certainly demonstrates resilience, the character's resilience and your resilience. And I'm not going to give away this incredible section at the end of the book that I have highlighted here because I want people to read Untethered. At the end, when you got to the end, when you did that final draft and sent it in, ultimately, was it cathartic and hopeful for you at the end or, or just heartbreaking? You know, the initial draft was heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Editors and publishers said it can't end there. (laughs) And so I changed the ending or added the ending. And I, you know, being edited is really difficult. (laughs) Yes. And yet, it's kind of like when you get in the car and you turn on Waze. If you're turning on Waze, listen to it. That's my feeling about being edited. Right? Like, don't argue with Waze. Right. Waze you'll only great. get into trouble. You'll only end up, yeah, if you're Waze in downtown Toronto, you'll, uh, downtown New York, you'll end up in Brooklyn. That's right. So right. if you're turning on Waze, yeah. if you're choosing to work with an editor, you listen to the editor, and they were right. Mm-hmm. And I do think that there is a, a a path to healing and maybe not necessarily optimism, but mm-hmm. certainly um, resilience mm-hmm. and tolerable. Mm-hmm. Well, I felt that there was hope and certainly the character is resilient. And this can be seen in your protagonist pedal. And I'm not going to say all the things that happened to her that show us this, but many, many things she survives many tragedies in her life. And it, it was so believable and so real. And I'm wondering what resilience means for you, for Ruth Rockoff. You know, life's hard. We're going to get knocked down. We're going to get knocked down in all sorts of ways that we can anticipate and even more that we can't anticipate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and the trick is getting back up. Mm-hmm. And the, the tools to be able to get back up and not just stay still, but to move forward. To me, that's what resilience is. Absolutely. What do you want to leave people with when they read Untethered? Is that it? What you've just said that no matter what happens, you've got it, you've got to get up and you've got to keep moving. What, what are the, what is the main, and everyone's going to get something different from it. It's like, it's like the Denise Levertov, the poet, and she writes two girls discovered a secret in a line of poetry I'd written that I never intended to put there. And I was like, wow, they discovered that. So of course, everyone's going to get something different, but what would you Ruth Rackoff as the author, like people to leave with? I'm sure there's many things, but one, one thing. You know, I don't think I wrote a, a, I don't know. I'm not sure if message is, is the right way to think about Like I said, I'm very compelled by narrative and story and voice and character. And I would like people to leave thinking that they were invested in the narrative and the characters and and the story. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even better if they were moved by it, because I think art is meant to move. It worked. (laughs) It worked. 
What is bliss for Ruth Rakoff? Oh, like I said, sunshine and beaches. If I could sit on a beach with a book <laughs> in the direct sunlight all day, I would be very, very happy. And I do that as often as I can. Could that be any beach or is that specifically the beach in Tel Aviv that you described so well? Oh, well, that's my favorite beach, but it could be <laughs> any beach. I'm not particular, preferably uh, warm water. Yeah. I'm, I'm not big on cold water. What is the best way for people to contact you, Ruth, and connect with you on social media? And of course, to get a copy of your beautiful book, Untethered. So the book is available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It'll be available in bookstores at the end of August. You know, all the usual channels to get hold of the book and social media. I'm on Facebook. I am uh, reluctantly on Instagram, but I don't really know particularly how it works. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I get messages on Facebook Messenger still about my first book. You know, someone out of the blue will message me and say, oh, I wanted to connect. I just read the book. It's incredible. I'm going to ask you all to stay with us for a moment. We're going to go on a short commercial break. And when we come back, I want to play a song, Ruth, that I know you love. And the song is called The Case of You by Joni Mitchell. And I love the song as well. And... I just thought it'd be a nice way to end the show. Before we go to commercial break, I just want to remind you all that each week we spotlight a fabulous person who is living their bliss. So if you're an author, artist, yoga, meditation, or mindfulness expert, or really anyone who has found and is following their bliss, we would love to hear from you. We also love to feature singers, songwriters, and musicians on this show. So if you're a singer, please reach out to us. Also, what did you love about today's program? Are there any guests or topics you'd like us to feature on Finding Your Bliss? write to me at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. I'm also a life coach. If I could help you in any way, let me know. You can reach out and contact me at findingyourbliss.com slash coaching. I'm also on Insight Timer, the number one free meditation app. You can search me up under Judy Liebrach. And of course, you can always follow us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Find Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. And I've been having an incredible conversation with author Ruth Rakoff, whose latest book, Untethered, is being released this September. You can pre-order the book right now everywhere where books are sold. Thank you, Ruthie, for being on the show today. It was so wonderful to have you here. Thank you for having me, Judy. And I'm so happy you liked the book. Before we go today, I wanted to share some exciting updates about our show, Finding Your Bliss in Bliss News. First up, let me just share with you all that I just became a grandmother. 
this week to a beautiful grandchild, a boy, and my son and daughter-in-law had him. And uh, it's kind of like falling in love all over again. It's really amazing. So welcome to the world. And um, it's just it's just the greatest bliss. What could I tell you? I also want to talk to you about next week's episode of Finding Your Bliss, which will feature the fantastic Farah Nasser, and it will mark the very last episode of our fourth season of the show. And I'm so excited to tell you all that we will be entering our fifth season here at Zoomer. And I've been reflecting on all of the wonderful experiences we've had and the incredible people I've had the opportunity to interview over the past four years. It's all been a pleasure. From Ruth Rackoff in today's show to Joan London, Miss Julie Black, the incredible Miss Julie Black, and also another incredible person, Sheila McCarthy, award-winning actor and phenomenal person, and so many more. I can't wait for you all to tune into our upcoming fifth season and hear from the stellar people that we'll be chatting with this upcoming season. We also have a lot of exciting changes coming up for Finding Your Bliss. If you're subscribed to my newsletter, you'll have seen some of this already. We've launched a Finding Your Bliss Patreon. So for only $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to the full video episodes of our show for the very first time. We've never done anything like this before. And I like to think that it's sort of a behind the scenes look at what it looks like when we record these episodes on the radio. Right now, we have some wonderful episodes with happiness guru, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, and one of the most famous bachelors on season 14 of The Bachelorette, Jason Tardick, uh, the beautiful and talented Cheryl Hickey from ET Canada. And these are all available for you to watch, and we will be releasing a new video every month. If you're interested in checking out our Patreon page, all you have to do is go to the Patreon website and search Finding Your Bliss, or you can go to the link in my Instagram bio at The Bliss Minute. Right now, we have our full video episode with Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar available to watch for free. It's one of my favorites, and I encourage you all to check it out. Patreon has been a part of this new and exciting chapter for the Finding Your Bliss team, and we're going to continue to grow the content that we make available there. So, if there's any exclusive content that you'd be interested in seeing from us on Patreon, please write to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com and let us know. It can be anything from personalized coaching to monthly bonus episodes. We want to know what you'd be interested in seeing from us. As well, we're looking for writers for our fabulous findingyourbliss.com magazine. So if you or someone you know has found their bliss or is feeling especially blissful about a topic and wants to write about it, something you're passionate about, something you love, something that's always been your calling, something you love to do, or the best way you like to spend your time, you can submit it to us to write for us at the same email, fyb at findingyourbliss.com. We're so excited to hear from you, and I can't wait to discover all of the blissful things that Season 5 has in store for us. I would like to thank our wonderful guest, Ruth Rackoff, for being on the show today. Also, thank you to Mag Ruffman, Siobhan Kylie, producer Olivia Weatherall, audio engineer Juliana Yanitz-Yellow, 
also on audio, Shelly Koskinen this week. Thanks, Shelly. Senior editor, Lauren Kaminsky. Video editor, Sierra Brown Rodriguez. Audio producer, Faz Kazi, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. For everyone here, I'm Judy Liebrack, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.